This is Amateur Logic, episode 102, for March 15th, 2017. This episode of Amateur Logic was brought to you by MFJ, the world leaders in ham radio accessories at mfjenterprises.com, and by ICOM. Time to put away those winter boots and spring forward with ICOM. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of Amateur Logic. I'm George. I'm Tommy. I'm Peter. And I'm Emil. And uh, as always, it is great to be back. It is. Uh, it's turned a little cool here in Mississippi tonight. I don't know if it's got down there to you yet, has it, Emil? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit cooler uh, around the high 60s over here, if you want to call that cool. Yeah, well, it is. It's pretty chilly yeah. here. I'd actually wear a jacket. But it's been really nice, apparently. I think probably oh, yeah. by next week I'm going to have to start cutting the grass at home. Yeah, I, I probably should have done it this week, but oh well. <laughs> Peter, how how are things in Australia? Oh, warm. It's actually a relatively warm day, and we've actually had a spell of, I don't know, a month or two of just warm but not extremely hot weather. It's been very, very pleasant here in uh, in Melbourne of late. That's, that's kind of the way it's been here, too. We've had a... A little more rain than, uh, yeah, than than I would like, uh, considering some of the places I have to drive. But uh, other than that, yeah, it's been pretty yeah, nice. My yards needed it though. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. did. No twisters down down in Mississippi at all. Uh, not mm, recently. Not lately. Let's keep it that way. way. Yep. <laughs> well, you Fair know, enough. anytime we're doing a show, we've got a uh, chat room going on at the same time. Join them. Over in there right now, there's a good group of folks over in there. AmateurLogic.tv slash chat. If uh, you're watching the recording of the show, there probably won't be anybody in the chat room, or if there is. See, there'll probably be a couple yeah. of people in there, but we won't be there. Yeah. And, but, uh, yeah. There's some that just kind of hang out in there all the time. I think they just leave the computer connected. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that usually happens when it's live, so... Watch watch for the posts, and uh, if you're watching the recorded one, watch the social media outlets for the post and join us when we film live. And uh, a lot of people find it kind of entertaining to see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, a few people mm-hmm. do. I know a few people. There's Particularly one in particular that really yeah. enjoys it if something's not going so smooth. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to tell the truth, I think there's a lot of folks in there that yeah. kind of yeah. <laughs> enjoy uh, seeing some of the pains and behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on here you know we only we only do amateur logic once a month so it's not like we ever really get practiced up and good at it before we take a break for another month well we got yeah we got two weeks well we do we do college college. yeah but the month thing sounded good well i I thought it was more legit sound yeah (laughs) anyway join them over there in the chat room and we're in there too we we glance at it as we can throughout the show See what's happening there. 
Well, Tommy, what have you been up to? Well, I've just actually I kind of took it easy this month. I uh, I don't have a segment. That's month. true, but we've got a full show. Never we do have a full show, so it's uh, actually we we've uh, here lately we've been running way over. So yeah, we have. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I've been playing around with uh, redoing my uh, DV Mega mm-hmm. software and doing some few things like that. So hope yeah. to have some of that coming up pretty soon. Got a. A new handy talkie I've been playing with, and I hope to show some of that pretty quick. Yeah, that's too. that's interesting. Yeah, uh, so got some good stuff coming. Well, Peter, what what have you been up to lately? Well, uh, I uh, I did some repairs on my laptop, and that's my segment for this month. And uh, I actually launched my balloon, uh, and you'll probably see some footage and other other bits and pieces from that next month. So uh, yeah, I've been quite busy down here. Unfortunately, my balloon. Well, you'll you'll have to wait and find out what happened to that. Yep, yep. We'll all be waiting, Peter. Yeah, looking forward to it. Emil, uh, what about down south there? What's been going on? Well, down south, and I guess I gotta blame it all on you guys. I uh, I'm head over heels totally into the uh, Raspberry Pi, and uh, the the bites of pie saga continues. <laughs> That's right, fist pump. It's it's your fault, <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm stuck. And gonna be there for a while. Yep. Just wait till we get them on the Arduinos. Yeah. Those. those I still think the Raspberry Pis are the best. Have you ordered one of the new Pis yet? The uh, the Zero uh, W, I think it's called, with the wires. No, no. I, I did expand my inventory of three Bs. So I got two more of those recently for other projects, and uh, but I haven't I haven't uh, ordered one of the other ones. But I, I did get to do a pull on the uh, Facebook forum, and that's uh, one of the things we're going to talk about. Oh, cool. Yeah, that'll be fun. Well, I've um, been more or less doing the same stuff here. I did revisit that 433 megahertz project that we looked at oh, yeah. uh, a couple of months ago where we got, what, maybe two feet yeah. distance out uh-huh. of it there. Well. Did you figure out what was wrong? Yeah, and I did a little experimenting and a little... Uh, Test and measurement there, and uh, oh, testing and measuring—that's yeah. that's good stuff. That is good stuff. Uh, yeah, should be interesting. Should be. Uh, well, I got some sad news. I hate to to bring forth tonight, but uh, I don't think it's unexpected news. Uh, March eighth, General Wireless Operations uh, Incorporated doing business as Radio Shack, the neighborhood electronics convenience store announced the company filed voluntary petitions under Chapter 11 in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court. So Radio Shack has filed bankruptcy, I guess, again. Oh, wow. Uh, RadioShack.com stores and dealer locations across the country are still currently open for business and serving customers. The company is closing approximately 200 stores and evaluating options on the remaining 1,300 I, I don't know which 200 stores. I haven't been able to find a list. Yet. Yeah. Uh, the company and its advisors are currently exploring all available strategic alternatives to maximize value for creditors, including the possibility of keeping stores open on an ongoing basis. I, I actually didn't realize they had 200 still open. I, I honest, honestly didn't. I, They've got... Uh, uh, Fifteen hundred open. Yeah, see, but I, I I had no idea. I don't think anybody else did either. Yeah, apparently, that might the be problem. the problem. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I, you know, sad to see them go that way. Uh, the first time they win, it was sad. The second time, it's like, it yeah. probably should have just stayed dead the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of I mean, like, uh, we'll have to start a new series, sort of like The Walking Dead. Yeah. You know, some big like Radio that. Shack employees yeah. walking around. Because, you know, uh, a lot of people are probably going to lose their jobs, but. Oh, uh, yeah, that, know, that's the worst part about it. It's been going that way, uh, steadily downhill. You know, I'll go in uh, the local one here occasionally, but it's rare I really find what I need. And yeah. Have you have you been in it since they kind of yeah. shut down and reopened? I have, and um, I noticed on their website, RadioShack.com, this week when they did that, they've uh, announced a bunch of clearance sales on there. They got stuff up to 50% off. And uh, so I went and looked at some of the prices and compared them to what I could buy it, the same item for from, say, MCM Electronics. And with the clearance sale, the prices at Radio Shack now are only about twice what they are in other places. Oh, they really slashed them. Yeah, slashed them quite a bit. So, you know, that 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 couldn't have been helping them. I mean, you know, I, when I go in there and I see... Uh, you know, a connector for eight bucks that I could buy somewhere else for a dollar fifty. Yeah. You know. So they so they still had some of that stuff. Huh? A little bit. They had the little bins with all the parts and stuff still uh, in there. Well, some of the spots were empty in them, but yeah, they still had the bins. Oh, interesting. It's just um, well, it's not the same store anymore, and we'll just have to see what the next chapter is going to be like there. Yeah, I think they're going to close the book before it's over. I think uh, it's probably. Probably the way it's headed. Uh, sad. Well, you know, we always talk about our um, amateur logic swag. That, yeah, that we don't have on tonight. That we don't have on tonight. That, but you're you're wearing the uh, K9 MIT swag there, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, sure am. Yeah, for just you know an honor. Yeah, Chip, he's there. in there too. Yep. This is for you, Chip. The K9 part <laughs> fell off. <laughs> Yeah, it's on the back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> should have. Well, I should have wrote one on paper and stuck it on there. You like know, a sticky our, note or something. Yeah, our friend uh, John Baggett K two B A G was. I don't know. If, he is in the chat room. Hi there, John. Well, you know, we had the photo he he caught of the amateur logic cap at the Atlanta airport, but uh-huh. last yeah. last month. Well. Apparently, he's done some more traveling, and the Amateur Logic swag made it with him. Awesome. We've got, uh, well, here's one right here. This is from the HR store, or HRO, yeah, in Oakland, California. Ah, cool. Yeah, representing there. Uh, He also, wow, he, he found a couple of others, Tommy. He went by your place. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you guys should come by there and see me later yeah get a good sandwich yeah, and something to drink and some cocktails and uh you know when you when you've had enough to eat <laughs> and you're about drunk just stagger on down the street and uh you can stay at the king george hotel <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> nice mm-hmm. i think i think that's out of my price range 
Yeah, I think it's probably it's, out uh, of mind, it's, too. It's pretty good for business, so I set them up, and then you just uh, yeah get the rest of their money there at the hotel. Well, we've got Winston's Bar inside there, so... Yeah. Because uh, they woke up thirsty again. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks thanks for that, John. We yeah. always like to see John, you. John represents well. He does. He, he, he absolutely does. He really does. And, and, <laughs> the, and imagine... I'm sure he was as dumbfounded as we were when he found your sandwich joint in my hotel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know anybody knew where that place was. I didn't either. But uh, not to be outdone, uh, there's been some more swag on the move. And that's, uh, well, Ralph Mills has been out there. Oh, and um, wow. He said the amateur logic hat can be seen in less wanky places than those visited by John Baggett. Uh, here... It's atop of knee-deep snow on our barn roof in Maine. Uh, Ralph. You know, you got to have some long legs for that roof to be at your knees. You do, and that's a pretty tall <laughs> shovel, too. <laughs> Looks like the amateur logic TV Frosty didn't make it. It didn't. Wow, I couldn't imagine that much snow, man. And then, not to be outdone, Mike, VE3, MIC came back and said right back at you, Ralph. Oh, <laughs> it's a competition. Who's mm-hmm. going to be next? <laughs> it's a good question, but uh, boy, that hat has really made the rounds. It, it, it has. You know, that's the one of the things of our own swag. I don't even own. Not much of a hat wearer, so. I'm but not, I may have to get yeah. one. I travel a good bit. I may have to do some of my own swag pictures. You do. You need to be uh, swagging it up, man. Yeah, I got. I'll be going to Utah, Arizona soon. South Texas, and then the usual Dallas. So I'm going to have to see if I'm about taking the cap and get some pictures myself. Yep, that would be good. Well, um, one other thing I need to, to mention here. You know, we had that tool circular last month that yeah. we were looking at. Oh, yeah, at, those were cool. Uh, the hazard fraught tools. Mm-hmm. And there was one item in there we just really didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Did I mention this to you already? No. I haven't. Okay. I mean, I remember from last month. Okay. But. Well, you know, we had the uh, the six-inch well-gutting knife there. <laughs> <laughs> and if you needed to gut a six-inch well, I think that's exactly what you'd need to yeah. use. <laughs> it looks like that would be right on target. <laughs> and also a left-handed mohill knife. Well, I wasn't pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, and you see there's a picture of a whale on the handle of the, the whale-gutting knife. Uh-huh. And I couldn't identify that fish on the other knife. That, By the way, that's pronounced mole. A mole? Oh, okay. Yeah. So is that a mole? Uh, it's also ideal for most walrus brisket. Mmm, well, walrus brisket. I haven't had any of yeah. that. No, it's, uh, it's not what we thought at all. Turns out that a mole is a uh, a Jewish guy that is practiced in the art of circumcision. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> definitely hazard fraught. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I I can't remember because I lost the email or the message. Who told me about that? I think Russell is the one who brought that to oh, my wow. attention, but... Um, yeah, we were way off on that. At least we cleared it up. He said <laughs> the, 
The reason it was so cheap is because there's not probably not a lot of left-handed molds. You know. <laughs> okay. So, so there you go. Well, Tommy, why don't you <laughs> bail us out on that one? Yeah, I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I can. Uh, I do have an email. Uh, this is from Andrew, KM6IEO. He says, Hi, Tommy, I received my call sign today, KM6IEO. going to think of a vanity one. Anyhow, my question is, what would you recommend for my first ham radio rig? There's so much stuff to learn. And that's not covered in the exam book. I have about $400 to start with, and I'll be using it as a base rig, more than likely a mobile radio in a base format, which a lot of us do that. Uh, they seem cheaper. I have looked at Kenwood, Icom, Alinko, etc. They all have good radios in my price point. Should I get a single band or a dual band? I found a local club to join. Their next in. Uh, next meeting isn't until the end of the month. Uh, can you help with suggestions? And I would say that if you can afford it, we, we actually talked about this not too long ago, I think, on Ham College. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you can afford it, I say get the dual band. You're basically getting twice the radio. Yeah. And uh, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, it just depends that's on what your everybody price told me when I bought my first VHF-only radio. Yeah. Well, I bought my first one was, uh, well, actually, my first mobile was a two-meter only, and then I kind of regretted it. So yeah. I, I would say if you can afford it, to go ahead and get that. But you're also going to need a power supply mm -hmm. and an antenna, so I'm assuming maybe you have another budget for that. But uh, yeah, all of those brands that you mentioned are good radios. I would personally probably steer away from some of the the uh, Chinese ones because you kind of get what you pay for, I think. But, you know, you'll have to weigh that out. And obviously we kind of lean towards some of the icon ones here, but all all of those are great radios. I don't think you'll go wrong with any of them. Yeah. yeah. So, Well, email, you've got, uh, <clears throat> well, you got something cheap for us tonight. You want to set it up? Sure, sure. So um, my uh, Bites of Pie uh, episodes... Uh, continue uh, since I am head over heels into those uh, pies, and I've decided to make me a little uh, two meter um, or VHF or UHF uh, beacon project um, with some a little bit different than the norm as far as keying goes. So check it out. Hello, George, Peter, and Tommy. Today I decided to uh, put together a um, beacon, a VHF, or not-so-common VHF, or UHF, depending on the rig, um, beacon with uh, using the Raspberry Pi and a radio and some software that I uh, wrote to make it all uh, work and to make it... Uh, comply to the keep it simple stupid or kiss rule here you can see the uh, beacon um, it's a multi-mode beacon using multiple modes at CW and uh, BPSK 63 uh, that I used FL Digi to record and uh, that's being decoded successfully through a uh, through the uh, ham radio deluxe running on this computer 
and uh, it is controlled via a uh, simple bash script that I uh, ran or wrote specifically for this. Now what kind of separates this one from others is the, um, the keying is all happening via the audio output jacks of the um, Pi going straight into the microphone jacks of the rig. Uh, you can see it's transmitting there. Running on a Raspberry Pi. And that's the, that is the audio version, or recorded audio, and there's also the multi-mode digital, uh, and they alternate between those two. I'll show you that in a minute. So the keep it simple, stupid principle behind this is the fact that what I really did here is used audio files, two different audio files, one multi-mode digital modes and the other one a voice uh, recording of me speaking um, the beacon um, that's running here in a terminal or shell uh, it was uh, written in bash as a script on the Raspberry Pi very simple loop basically an infinite loop alternating between those two files that's stored on the Pi um, what I used to actually create those is FL Digi because um, I took the output from FL Digi's uh, digital modes, multiple digital modes, and recorded them to these OGG or OG audio files and then uh, made that alternate. And the Pi is simply putting out audio out to the, uh, the rig here. Um, now I did happen to also uh, hop over to Dave's Hobby Shop in Arkansas and pick up a set of uh, these um, adapters so that I can hook it up to my outside antennas, uh, which I'll which I'll do. Um, uh, there's kind of what I use this for is whether or not you know people around me will know that I'm in the shack when this beacon is working, and of course if there's any um, propagation, ducting, or um, other um, atmospheric events. Uh, you'd be surprised at how far you can hear these things out. So, um, anyway, that's the uh, the cheap old man, not so common Raspberry Pi uh, beacon project there. Another cool aspect of the uh, Raspberry Pi, of course, is the networking abilities. And it's um, running on a local network I have here in the shack uh, through the remote uh, connectivity, which is the... Uh, VNC program, which a little bit more secure version included with the Pi. I like what they're doing there. Um, so good stuff for remote, remoting and controlling this as needed, depending on the uh, situation. Sometimes you might have to shut down the beacon, and uh, it's one of the other things I wanted to mention. The beacon itself is running within a certain range in the VHF uh, two meter band that is allotted for propagation type. Uh, beacons so um, that is something you want to look at I forget exactly what the FCC uh, rule number for that is but I'll, I'll probably list it here um, and that's, uh, that's something to watch out for when you're uh, putting beacons in certain places there are band plans that show you where those can go one thing to also notice is that it is um, it takes some tuning to get the um, Vox settings to work um, for it to be um, 
you know, key in that box correctly. In fact, that's why you hear a beep at the um, beginning of the beacon. I recorded that in there to basically kickstart that box circuit. Um, but uh, it did take a little bit of uh, adjustment, adjustment on the uh, radio and the uh, um, Pi levels to get those uh, two to cooperate. But it is the uh, Vox setting that's built in there that's keying the rig. Interesting project there. Yeah. Pretty cool yeah. stuff. Pretty easy to put together, too. Yeah. Yeah, it was easy. And, and the trick was really to get the audio level set right uh, from when I recorded into those OGG or OG audio files on the Pi um, so that it could be decoded. I, I was able to work with a, uh, some people within a few miles of uh, me uh, down here so that they could, you know, hear it. And they worked out some issues with me, like a ground loop issue I had, uh, mm -hmm. you know, some filters, and also uh, just to verify that we could uh, decode the uh, digital parts. But it's a pretty simple project and definitely cheap. Yeah, you, you kept it in the required uh, price range. Yeah. That's right, both on the rig and the uh, the computer. Yeah. 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 Kevin, uh, was it K, let's find it here, Kevin, uh, K something, uh, K poor IVE, I think it was, mentioned in the chat room that uh, that's what he does for fox hunts. So some people might get some use out of that. Absolutely, yeah. Our, our club, it's been a while since they've done that, but that's that's a great idea to just set that recording at the lowest power setting, put it in the uh, area somewhere, let it go. Yeah. Cool. The well, fox, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peter, you've got a um, a Facebook post here for oh, us, yes. don't you? Oh, yes, yes. Well, this is from Drew, and he's, it's a picture, which well, we'll see in a second. And if you're going to eat Vegemite... Get it shoveled on, you bunch of shielers. Whoa, <laughs> Whoa that's now, pretty brave. A couple, couple of comments here. I'm not exactly convinced that is Vegemite. It doesn't look black enough. It look, looks more like treacle to me. So um, I've got my doubts. But the other thing is that if that is Vegemite, um, I recommend that you probably don't put that much on, particularly if you're not uh, used to actually uh, eating Vegemite. stuff is very, very strong. <laughs> That, that could take paint off, couldn't it? Yeah, man, that's hurting me just looking at it. Wow. So, so that you don't you don't think that's real Vegemite, Peter? You think it's what? Uh, something like treacle or even honey. It doesn't doesn't look like Vegemite that's to me. Honey. Vegemite is black. Yeah. Yeah. The Marmite stuff looked kind of like that, didn't it? I don't think it was quite as dark as the Vegemite. Oh, it was pretty yeah. bad. Yeah. But remember, Marmite is fake Vegemite, so yeah. you don't even go near the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, what have you got for us this month, Peter? Oh, well, uh, I, uh, I, I bought a cheap laptop a little while ago. It cost me a couple of hundred dollars. Great laptop, but then it sort of fell off my desk. So ah. here you go. Hello and welcome once again. This month, something a little bit different. My Acer Aspire E14 laptop. Now this is just a basic laptop. It only cost me a couple of hundred dollars a couple of years ago. Uh, it just does the basic tasks like connecting to the internet, word processing, etc. But that's all I wanted, and that's fine. It's also relatively light, which is which is quite good. The only problem is that it sort of fell off my desk, and now the screen is cracked, as I'll show you in a minute. 
Now I could take it down to my local computer repair shop, but it might cost me a couple of hundred dollars and that just wouldn't be worthwhile. However, I thought to myself, maybe, just maybe, I could actually repair the screen myself. So I went to YouTube and I searched around for videos about how to repair an E14 screen. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any, but I did find an E15 screen repair video. And the E15 model is very, very similar to this. So I'm hopeful that I might be able to repair this screen myself. The next thing I did was I went on to eBay and also Frugal and I searched around for an Acer uh, Aspire E14 screen and lo and behold I found one. It cost me about $40, uh, shipped to me from China and here it is. So let's see if we can fix this laptop. Now here's the broken screen. Uh, the computer seems to be running okay but as you can see the screen is uh, split into a number of uh, different parts. Uh, I don't think that's caused by a loose connector or anything like that. To me it looks like uh, something has hit the screen and caused it to crack in various places. So the screen will have to be replaced in its entirety. Alright, I've disconnected the power and also taken out the battery. So there's no power to the machine whatsoever. Now I need to pull this screen away very carefully. It should just unclip. So far so good. Now I'm going to have to have a closer look at these hinges to see how I can, oh no, here we go. Just need to flick this out here. It should come out with a little bit of a, be careful not to break it. Almost there, there we go. We've got that out. Now I've removed the bezel from around the screen and here's my replacement screen and as you can see the thing that's holding the screen uh, to the laptop are four screws one two three four and we'll have to remove those now before we do that plastic container to put our, uh, our screws in as they come out so let's get them out it's one and that's four we very carefully fold that down and be very careful about this because there's a cable here that um, connects the screen to the laptop and you don't want to damage that at all. All right, I've got a knife. Let's see if we can sort of get under this at all. And there we go. Probably not the best way to do that, but still, I did not pull that up too much. All right, so there's our connector. Looks like there's a bit of an adhesive tab there, and our screen is now removed. So let's now replace the screen, putting in the connector the same way, and evenly and gently putting, oh, hopefully pushing this into place. That looks pretty good. And then 
put our tape down like so to hold it in place. Next thing is to position the new screen in place and put some screws in. So I'll try not to lose the screws. <laughs> Okay, now for the moment of truth. Will my screen work or not? Here goes nothing. Well, I've got some good news and some bad news. As you can see, the screen is working perfectly fine. I'm, obviously, I can see what's being displayed on the screen. Unfortunately, what's being displayed on the screen is that there's no bootable device. But I know why that's the case. It's nothing to do with what I've been doing with the screen. It has to do with the fact that I tried to replace my hard drive with a solid state drive at one point. It didn't have any success, so I put the old hard drive back in place, or at least I thought I did. I'm going to have to go back and check the connector. But, uh, as you can see, the, um, uh, the screen is working perfectly fine. So all I need to do is to put back the bezel and click that back into place. And I don't need to worry about this any longer. So just push that back like so. Hopefully it'll go back. Good, good, good. Gently does it. And there we go. 100% fixed screen. Perfectly fine. Now to go and work on the hard drive. Time for some hard drive debugging. Well, as you can see, I've uh, removed the screws from the back cover and carefully folded it over like so, taking care not to damage this cable. Now, why wouldn't it boot up? Well, the reason is I didn't put the hard drive back. So now I've hunted around and I've found what I think is the old uh, hard drive from this particular laptop. Can't be 100% certain because I've got a couple of these, but never mind. Seeing as I've got this all open, what better opportunity uh, than to do an upgrade? Here's a Kingston 120 gigabyte solid state drive. Let's pop this in here, like so. These hard drives just slot in like so, and are held in place. Uh, nothing to, uh, yep, nothing to, um, to screw in or anything like that. It's uh, perfect, it'll be held by the back cover. I've now put the laptop back together again. When I did so, I had a pleasant surprise, as you'll now see. Let's boot the laptop up. And within just a second or two, I'm into a menu, I hit enter. And this won't take long. Compare this with, for example, how long Windows takes. And lo and behold, uh, I'm into LXLE, a lightweight Linux environment. Uh, it's a, a version of Linux that it's got a full uh, office suite, which is LibreOffice, and um, internet, which is Mozilla. Uh, well, we've got games, accessories like uh, your calculator, etc. So uh, a, a pretty uh, full suite of programs here in LXLE. 
what had happened was that, uh, and it had slipped my mind, I actually put LXLE on that solid state drive some time ago and did actually have it running on this laptop. But I ran into a few problems. The um, versions of Linux or current versions of Linux, be they Ubuntu or LXLE or whatever, and believe me, I tried a few, all couldn't run on this laptop simply because um, there's a Wi-Fi chipset in here which was so new that they didn't have the drivers for it. Otherwise, everything else worked perfectly fine. Uh, and this operating system will run perfectly fine as well, except that I won't be able to use the Wi-Fi. But there's a way around that. And that's simply to get a little USB um, Wi-Fi plug, plug that into the side of the, uh, the laptop, and it will work perfectly fine. And hopefully at some stage in the future, uh, they'll find or develop the drivers for the chipset in this particular laptop. Anyway, I've now got my operating system running uh, on my laptop. The screen is working perfectly. I could not be happier. So, and the other thing is I've probably saved myself $160 uh, in uh, repair costs. So I couldn't be more pleased. It looks like success. Yeah. Yes, it's success, and the price is right. What do you think, Emil? Oh, I'm loving it, Peter. I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, looks like a, a happy ending to that one. Oh, absolutely. Solid-state yeah. drives are the bomb when it comes to speed, especially on boot-up. Aren't they? Yeah, and, yeah. and the good thing is, I didn't explain this in the video, but LXLE is actually a lightweight Linux environment, so it runs really well on old hardware, and if you've got newer hardware, it runs even faster. So... Uh, it's uh, the combination of a solid-state drive with LXLE. It means that, uh, you know, you, you get a really, really good result. I have not had to do anything like that myself, replace a, a screen and a laptop before. So no, I've replaced so. most everything in there, but I just haven't done a display. Yeah. But, this uh, oh, well, Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, um, one of the purposes of making that segment was to show people that you know, you can often find repair videos of how to fix whatever you're trying to fix on YouTube. And, uh, you know, go have a go. It's not as difficult as it looks. Yeah. But or, just be careful to follow the instructions. Or you can do like us and make your repair videos. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm so cheap, Peter, that uh, the, the laptop I'm on this Skype <clears throat> session on is a laptop with a broken display that's docked in the shack here. It's just closed, and I have a television here. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Oh, wow. I, ne I never did replace the screen, but uh, I've, uh, I actually have a screen to replace it with. i just never done it. Wow. Yeah. Now, now, conversely, I do actually have plans for a future segment, which does the exact opposite. Were you going to break it? Right? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no. In fact, what I do is I, I have another broken laptop, right, with a really, really good screen. And uh, it's possible to actually take the screen out and you go onto the internet. You can buy a special uh, uh, VGA driver, which allows you to take uh, any source, be it HDMI, um, VGA, whatever. And, uh, you know, you can build a small enclosure for your new screen. And basically you turn it into a, a monitor. So it's a good way of recycling old screens that are good, but where the laptop doesn't work as well. So uh, that, that's something I'm hoping to do in the near that's future, an and it's not expensive concept. either. I could I could see some use for that. I got access to a couple of broken laptops with decent screens on them. Yeah, 
You make small HDMI monitors out of them. That'd be pretty cool. That would be. Wow. That would be nice. Yep. And okay. they also accept composite inputs as well. So it's really, uh, uh, these uh, driver boards are really, really good. Yeah. yeah, we don't we don't have composite inputs here. No, but if it but if it works with HDMI, I I may be doing that soon myself. We got composite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, not uh, not a lot anymore. No, not so much. I had a nice Commodore composite monitor one. Composite. Yeah. Composite. Oh, what was that? Uh, what was that monitor? Seventeen something. I, it could have been. It had RGB inputs on the rear. Yeah, yeah. And, and to separate out the chroma and the luma, and the it got real crystal clear. I remember that monitor. Oh yeah. I took that well, after I quit using the Commodores. I got a uh, a TV tuner and hooked to it. Well, actually, I think I used a cheap VCR email. It was a VCR I had already. So as any, a tuner. Yep. Yeah. Any points for that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it made major a major cheat points. A really nice looking uh, television back in the analog days. Well, I think we'll take a break now. We're going to be back because we got a lot more to go yet. Uh, I'm going to talk a little about that 433 megahertz receiver. And John Ossie is back. Remember we were talking about Jansky last yeah. show, uh-huh. and he's going to wrap that up for us and. Uh, it's some really interesting stuff. Yeah, you know, there. I didn't cheat and watch the second half, but uh, I'm actually really interested in seeing yeah. the rest There's of it. There's an antenna project in here that uh, Emil can do in his backyard that I'm I'm really looking forward Pretty to seeing. Pretty cheap, huh? Well, <laughs> maybe. If he can salvage it, he may can come up with a cheap way to do it. Okay. But uh, let's get a message now from MFJ. RFI can wreak havoc, not only on your ham equipment, but also on other electronics in the vicinity. MFJ comes to the rescue with the gear you need to locate the trouble and the solutions to solve it. The ultra-sensitive MFJ-805 RFI detector tracks down RFI caused by radiating cables. Find exactly which cable is radiating RFI so you can eliminate it with a simple toroid or clamp-on RFI filter. Eliminate hash birdies whistles and transit noise from your receiver. Use it to find RFI generated by consumer devices, computers, and office equipment, too. The MFJ-805 also works with mobile installations. It's easy to use. Simply clamp the current transformer over suspected cables or wires to detect RFI causing common mode currents. MFJ's 853 calibrated clamp-on RF current meter accurately measures RF current in antenna elements, ground wires, and coax shields. Or slip it over a mobile whip to tune for maximum current and radiation. The MFJ915 RF isolator is a 1 to 1 HF current ballon designed to be placed in line with a 50 ohm coax. 50 ferrite core beads reduces or eliminates stray RFI often found on coax. MFJ's 700 series snap on chokes are selected for RFI suppression. Install on DC power lines to keep ignition noise from your mobile rig and amplifier. Remove RF on cables and wires in your radio station. Two-piece design snap and lock securely around your cable. Install end-to-end along rigid cable or loop multiple terms with smaller soft cable. Or choose MFJ701. Four square ferrite toroids allow you to wind all kinds of cables, computer ribbons, TV coax, power cords, telephones, and more. 
Learn more about MFJ's RFI solutions. Visit MFJEnterprises.com today. MFJ's 45th anniversary, and it's the ARRL Day in the Park. Everyone's invited to come celebrate September 29th and 30th this year in Starkville, Mississippi. They got free prizes, major prizes from MFJ, Ameritron, Cushcraft, High Gain, Mirage, and Vectronics. They're going to do the uh, drawings on uh, September 30th at 2 p.m. That's uh, that's a Saturday. You've got to be present to win. Yeah. And uh, you and you want to be present. Yeah. Uh, they also got free factory tours, interesting educational tours for the whole family at MFJ, Ameritron, Cushcraft, High Gain, Mirage, Vectronics, MFJ Metal Shop. That's on Friday the 29th at 8 a.m. to 4.30 and Saturday, uh, September 30th from 7 a.m. to noon. And that's that's the big reason you want to go right there is the factory tours, man. They are, it, well... If you go back um, and look through some earlier episodes of Amateur Logic, you'll see tours that we did back. How many years ago was that now? That's been, I've been back here nine years, and it was while I was in Missouri because so I couldn't about come ten down. Years. It's been about ten years. Yeah, ten years ago was the last time they did this. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what has changed there myself. Well, I'm but, looking forward to seeing it myself. The factory tours, the videos that mm-hmm. you were able to do were, were really great. And actually, they were some of our most popular yeah. things there a long time. And uh, But I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. I should yeah. be able to make it this time. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. If if you're in the South, definitely uh, try to come to that. Uh, Emil, everything's free. So, oh, man. It's got a, yeah. the price. <laughs> yep. And it, even like in free lunch. Uh, Get out. Yep. Mississippi Southern Fried Chicken and the fixings in McKee Park on uh, Saturday, September 30th from 12 to 2 p.m. You need to bring a lawn chair because it is uh, it gets crowded there, but they have enough food to go around for sure. Yeah, and they also have tailgating. Uh, that's free. Haggle and deal in the MFJ parking lot. And also at McKee Park. That's on the 30th from 7 a.m. until 2 p.m. And they've got free forums and demos to be announced yet. They haven't uh, determined exactly what those will be. And they're going to give FCC license exams there. Yeah, it looks like the Lowndes County Amateur Radio Club is going to have some VEs there. Uh, bring your government ID and $15 cash. And uh, that'll be on the 30th at 9 a.m. Yep. Come on down to Starkville, Mississippi for the 45th anniversary of MFJ Enterprises and the ARRL Day in the Park, September 29th through 30th, 2017 in Starkville, Mississippi. If you can't make it for some reason, if you're too far, uh, they've got a special event station there, K5MFJ. K5MFJ. So uh, try to get that in your logbook. Yep. Catch them on the air. It should be a big time. I'm really looking forward to it. It, it is going to be. You know, you, you were supposed to bring me back a piece of that fried chicken last time. So yeah, but looks I like had, I'm going to have to go get my own. I had Wayne with me last time, and the chicken just didn't. Did, he never didn't, made it back down here, did back, it? No. Yeah. I've got an email here from, uh, not an email, an email. Okay. <laughs> and this comes from Beat Gunnern. HB3YOL. He said, I'm a regular viewer of Amateur Logic. Uh, your project, George, experiments with the 433 megahertz transmitter and receiver modules for the Arduino was very interesting, 
because I'm also an Arduino maker. Uh, congratulations, Beat. Um, where can I find your code for the four 33 megahertz transmitter and receiver modules for the Arduino on your website, amateurlogic.tv? I couldn't find anything. Please send me a link or your code. Uh, thanks and kind regards. You can find that at amateurlogic.tv slash, let's see. Well, I've got the link in this segment right here because, interestingly enough, that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Oh, okay. It's the uh, 433 megahertz. We uh, are no longer bound by one-foot barrier. You think we're going to make it from the end of the table, one end of the table to the other? I believe we could. Awesome. Let's, let's well, that opens see. up a lot more possibilities. We can work more than the T-layer. Okay. <laughs> the T-layer. <laughs> Back in January, in episode 100 of Amateur Logic, we looked at the little 433 MHz transmitter and receiver pair that I picked up at the Huntsville Ham Fest, and we did a little experimenting with them. Unfortunately, we found that the range was only a few feet at best. Very nice. Yeah. We so, get about half a mile with that. <laughs> Man, I I couldn't get the width of this table with this thing. Really? Yeah. Very discouraging. I decided to do a little experimenting and see what the problem was. The first thing that I did was go to the internet, do a little research. I was thinking I've got a quarter wave vertical here and a quarter wave ground radial on it. Well, some guy on there said that what you need is a coil-loaded antenna, and he gave all the dimensions and told about how much it improved his. And so I built a couple of those, and I tried them on the receiver and transmitter as well. No improvement whatsoever, and I didn't think there would be, but, uh, you know, made them anyway just to see theory would say that no that's um you know that's really not going to be any better than a resonant antenna we're going to do a little experimenting here and see well is it the transmitter or is it the receiver now, the first thing i did was fire up the transmitter and look at it with a spectrum analyzer just to see what kind of signal there was there and right there 433 megahertz that is a very strong signal showing up there. I'm not going to read the exact measurement there in decibels, but it's um, it's fairly high. Now, of course, the receiver and the transmitter are this close together. Well, you would think you could probably still get you know some distance to that, so I'm going to take the transmitter and go as far as I can back on the other side of the room here. Now the transmitter's at least 20 feet away from my receiving antenna here. This test is far from scientific, but we can see that, you know there's still a fairly good signal there, way above the noise floor. So that's at uh, minus 45, just a little better than that there on the spectrum analyzer. And this is not calibrated in any particular way, it's just for reference purposes. I'm going to add my quarter-wave ground radial back, and we can see it gave just a, a slight improvement there to the signal. 
everything's highly interactive here as I move around or move anything in the shack here. You're going to see it change. But I think my test is saying that the transmitter is okay. It's clearly above the noise level at 20 feet away, and I could probably get much further than that and still be way above the noise floor. So the next thing I did was took a UHF transmitter, which I just used, uh, MFJ266C antenna analyzer here that covers UHF. I put it on 433 megahertz, hooked my little antennas up to it, compared it with the signal that I was getting on the spectrum analyzer there, and I got just about the same, maybe slightly more out of this. However, I couldn't pick it up a bit better with the little receiver module here. Either one of those, if I got more than, uh, you know, a foot or two away, the receiver was having problems. So at this point, I've decided it's got to be the receiver. I did some reading online and found out that, uh, yes, these particular receiver boards right here are real poor, and people have been ordering a super heterodyne model to replace these with and getting much better results. So I did that. Of course, it came from China, so it took a couple of weeks to get here. This is an RXB8 module. You can find them on the Internet for a few bucks. I've forgotten exactly how much I paid for that one right now. As you can see, it's got a few more parts on it than the little cheap module that we were originally using. Now, I didn't have to change my code. The same code worked with this. Uh, the pinout on it is... Pretty much the same, but it's labeled on the board there so you can see where you got the plus five, the data in the ground. Over here, you've got another ground where I've put my ground radio, and then also you've got a pin for the antenna there. So it's a little bit easier to hook up. Now, this one cost, uh, you know, several dollars more than the little one that I got with the kit, but there's no comparison between the two. I didn't really change my code much. I've made some slight changes to it just for display purposes. So here's a link where you can download a new version of it if you'd like it. I've added a 0.1 capacitor there across the power supply rails. It really didn't make any difference. But let's see how this super heterodyne receiver behaves. Well, it's picking up fine, you know, 20 feet away. Do you see this other little carrier out here on the spectrum analyzer? Since this is a super heterodyne receiver, we're actually seeing the IF frequency there. Let's see if that's correct. Okay, we've got a marker there at 433 megahertz. And we can see that's pretty much the frequency we're operating on. Let's put another marker on here. You see that 2 right there? 9.333 megahertz. So it's about a 10 megahertz IF on this thing. But it's receiving very well. As a matter of fact, I took it outside and did some experimenting with it. Did I convince you to buy a spectrum analyzer, Tommy? No. You just said. Still, no, I said if I knew how to use it, I'd be tempted to buy one. That's how you learn how to yeah. use it. 
But now I'm so real what, tempted to come over here and borrow yours. <laughs> so what range were you able to get, George? Well, and that's, I'm glad you asked that question, Peter. I took it outside, uh, the little transmitter, and I set it up on top of garbage can, plastic one, just, you know, away from the building here a little bit, out and open, but so maybe it's four feet off the ground. And I put a 9-volt battery on it. No, no, actually, I think I hooked that one up to a, a wall wart okay. and run an extension cord out there. So it's just sitting out mm-hmm. in the yard. And then I took the little receiver on the breadboard, and I started walking around the neighborhood. And I got about 500 feet away, and it was still coming in good and strong. Really? Yeah. And the other one wouldn't work from you to me. Right. And so I decided to go on the other side of the the main street over here. And now there were cars and houses and everything else blocking my signal. But I was able to walk a quarter mile away before it, you know, it it really got. uh, That's that's very useful. The other one, pretty much (laughs) worthless. No. But but that's that's a good useful distance. It is. Some good projects for that. It is. Now, you know, all I was doing is using it for CW there. I was just turning the transmitter on and off. Uh, But you can actually run data into it, you know, so you could uh, transmit uh, text or uh, Mm -hmm. meter readings or, you know, whatever you you wanted to with it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a very handy little thing. And and you asked how much that module was. I. I think it was between four and five dollars for that little receiver. Thirty dollars to ship it from China? No, it was <laughs> it was pretty cheap. So uh, yeah, it, that made all the difference in the world. Yeah, you, you moved to. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, I was going to say it's a shame uh, it doesn't do audio because you could start your own little pirate radio station then. You could probably you could do digital audio. It'd be pretty low bit rate. You'd have to get everybody in the neighborhood to buy those little $4 modules to listen to your yeah. pirate radio station, though. Actually, you could do AM with it if you want to get creative. Oh, yeah? Just turn the carrier on and, um, well, would it work? I don't know. I hadn't tried it. You, you might could do AM with it. Yeah. Uh, you you moved from the uh, the T layer f- to the, uh, the G layer, from garbage can to garbage can? Well, no, I didn't have a garbage can at the other layer, uh, at the other end. It was the, uh, I think it's the end layer, the, the neighborhood layer, maybe. I'm not sure. Man, i, I got to go study again. All these propagation methods, yeah. I must have missed yeah. those. But it was, actually, it's useful now. So, um, yeah. you need to watch uh, Hand College, and Mel, so you can brush up on those. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. An, an ideal use for, for that would actually be controlling a remote control boat of some kind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Be You're, perfect. I noticed uh, Chris, our, our uh, friend KD8YVJ, you remember Chris. Oh, yeah. I know Chris. Cincinnati Short Rib. Yeah. Uh, he's he's playing with one right now. Oh, yeah? He's doing a project with it. and uh, We'll have to see yeah, I wonder uh, what, what he's it, making what his results are like. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, email. I think you, you've got. Some, what is it you've got to show us tonight? You kind of got off the uh, Google Plus thing, didn't you? Yeah, I uh, I switched back over to Facebook. In fact, there's two things. There's a post in the Facebook uh, Amateur Logic Forum from uh, Frank 
uh, Ravenswood. What he's mentioning is the um, uh, SDR Sharps. You know, we've all done a segment maybe now on the um, the dongles, right? Yeah. Well, uh, whether we use the uh, SDR Sharp program or uh, some other uh, SDR software, there's a piece that goes with it that will decode all, just about all of the new digital voice modes um, and the public service ones as well, uh, P25 and um, Clear Voice. There's, there's all The reason I got into it in the first place was to figure out how to decode something here that nothing I had scanner-wise or anything else could decode. So um, there's some neat stuff how you can pipe that audio through within the computer to a, uh, a to actually a DOS-based program that uh, decodes all of those digital voice modes, including other digital modes as well. So that was neat stuff. And uh, I think his call was uh, W4RAV, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Frank, Frank's frank been in their Facebook group of uh, Amateur Logic Watcher for a long time. Yeah. 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 And you have another one. I do. Um, we took we took a poll of uh, you know who had uh, Raspberry Pi, and you can see there the three B is the dominant one, followed by the two B, um, and zero the one you guys I think were asking me about, um, which I saw a lot of people in the chat room say they were uh, getting. But my favorite pie of all, of course, is the none of the above pie. I don't have that one yet, but. But I hear Five it might be uh, really it cheap. Lo- it looks pretty popular. Yeah. <laughs> and then the one A. Um, I've never. I don't think I've ever heard of the zero wireless one, but it was on their um, the website of uh, Raspberry Pi when I saw it. So I added it on there. So. Yeah, that's the brand new one. So I'm where is the, the regular old B model B, the original? That is not even on this poll because I, what I did was I went to their main uh, website to get all of the models. I guess that they're you know, offering or putting there, and okay. this is what was on that site. Well, maybe that's the none of the above. Yeah, because I've got <laughs> two or three of them. Uh-huh. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a great segment here that uh, John Ossie put together on Jamski. Before we do that, let's get a message from one of the sponsors, help pay the bills here, and we'll be right back with John's segment. It's time to put away those winter boots and spring forward with ICOM. Base stations, mobile transceivers, handhelds, and more, ICOM has all the equipment to help make your spring full of adventure. Get out and get mobile with ICOM. Communicate with the touch of your fingertips. Perfect for small spaces, the IC7100 is the ideal D-Star option to help communicate anywhere. Angled control head and touchscreen for quick, intuitive operation, large internal speaker for clear digital audio, and it's perfect for multi-band and all-mode communications. Do you have spring travel plans this year? Back for a limited time, the IC7200 is a great option for hams wanting a device to carry out into the field. Simple and tough with IFDSP, digital noise reduction, and USB port for PC control. Ideal for the ham on the go, Try the IC7300. It's a high-performance, innovative HF transceiver with a compact design. RF direct sampling, 15 discrete bandpass filters, large 4.3-inch color touchscreen, real-time spectrum scope, SD memory card slot, and more. Visit icomamerica.com amateur for more information on all ICOM radios. As I mentioned, John Ossie N3DRH does a presentation on Carl Jansky 
the father of radio astronomy, or, or so he's credited to being. Uh, this is really good. Email, get your notepad out so you can take notes on this antenna system here. Hey, this is John N3DRH, and we want to finish up part two of uh, Jansky and how he discovered or how he invented inadvertently radio astronomy. All right? So here's a picture of uh, Carl uh, at his chart recorder, which is the predominant way they uh, they uh, recorded the noise level. And if you notice up at the top, he is actually plotting the intensity of radio signals in different portions of the uh, sky. And what's curious about that is that the antenna that he made was fully rotatable in uh, azimuth, but had no elevation capability whatsoever. So how how do you think he was able to uh, get to other portions of the sky? You'll have to just follow along. Um, the uh, antenna that he used was a Bruce antenna array, named after Dr. Array. No, it was uh, uh, Edmund Bruce. And there is an example from the ARRL 19th uh, edition of the antenna book. And it is a, uh, what is it? It's a broadside or curtain array. And uh, each segment uh, of uh, the box, of the boxes are a quarter wavelength. You can have as many boxes, I guess, as you want. But the boxes hang vertically, hence the, the name curtain. Um, it runs about 250, 300 ohm impedance. Um, it was patented in 1927 by Edmund Bruce, also of Bell Labs, probably in the same uh, radio group as uh, Jansky. And Bruce later on went on to invent and uh, patent the uh, rhombic antenna. So you saw this. This is what it looks like. Uh, but how do you feed one of these guys? And uh, interestingly, every reference that I found uh, uh, basically feeds it in one of the vertical elements. Uh, oh, before I do that, um, the tails at the end of um, the tails at the end of the uh, boxes can either go in or out, apparently. Um, but all the feed points in all the references, including the uh, AWRL references, show it as you you break one of the center uh, segments, and then that's where you that's how you feed it, and it doesn't matter how many. Um, Portions, I don't want to call them elements because this is really a single element as I'm depicting it here. Single element uh, with a single driven element. Uh, but the portions of the boxes are, are always fed from the, the vertical side. Unless, of course, you're Carl Jansky. Okay, so again, the red showing up where, where they show the, the feed line being attached. All right. So this is the representation of the driven element that Jansky used. And, uh, of course, I already told you that each segment is a quarter wavelength. And um, uh, he made this thing on a gigantic frame that would enable 360-degree rotation. Not just rotation, but continuously rotating unaided uh, with a motor. Uh, the other unique thing that no one seems to have else has, has done is he added a reflecting element in the back, a passive reflector, that was 15%, I should say, not larger, but taller than the driven element. Um, in the horizontal, the reflector was exactly the same dimensions, but it was extended 15% uh, 
taller in the vertical dimension. And uh, because it was a two-element antenna, John Krauss called it a Bruce beam in one of his references. And here's the other strange thing that no one else seems to have done, and there are no references to this other than Tijansky, is that he fed it with a T-match on the center of the horizontal segment. So doesn't that make it a horizontally polarized antenna? I think so. Uh, some of you antenna experts uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In an IEEE uh, uh, publication and other publications, any publication on uh, Bruce arrays, whether they're referring to Jansky's or anyone else's, they always say that they are, they're, vertical, they're vertical antennas by their nature. I don't think so, though, but uh, I might need correcting on that. Here is a, what appears to be a um, diagram from his notebook. Notice the two um, uh, elements up at the top. Obviously, the driven element is the one uh, attached to, uh, you know, the termination circuit. And uh, there is the T-match right here. And uh, uh, that's connected to one side. And, of course, the other side um, uh, connected to the antenna itself. So you don't break the antenna at all, as in a vertical. Um, you just connect it to the center. And it comes down here to a turn tuned circuit, inductively coupled to a tuned circuit. And then it goes into this thing. Uh, which looks, which apparently they call a pipe transmission line. I'm guessing because coax didn't exist back then, at least in the sense that we have it today, is that you had to make coax out of pipe. Um, so again, if you have any historians there who can correct me on that, I, I'd sure like to know. Here's the actual antenna with Jansky in front of it. This is one of the best pictures. Uh, take a good look. You can see the elements closer to Jansky are obviously the uh, reflectors, because they're taller, and the ones out front behind him, him in the back are the driven element. You can't really see the uh, T-match the at all. It's hidden amongst all the 2x4s, but it's there. And then you can see right away how he did the 360-degree rotation was on this track and with these uh, Model T wheels. Notice uh, he used 7-8-inch brass tubing, 411 feet of it, so this, just the metal part of this antenna might have weighed 450 pounds. I mean, it, it could have been as light as 250, but it could have gone all the way up to 450 pounds. And the wavelength he operated on was about 14.6 meters. Right? Curiously, uh, if you take a quarter of a wavelength of 14.6 meters, you get mighty, mighty close within a few percent of uh, 12 feet. Guess how long brass tubing comes in? the lengths that it's available in. You're, you're right, 12 feet. So here's the active element. Like I told you, it's out front. I've highlighted in yellow. Uh, just in case you, you, you can follow it through all the lines. That's the passive reflector. That, so there's this curious thing. Is you'd expect it to be larger. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be larger in the horizontal, but certainly uh, larger in the vertical. But here's the strange thing about it being larger in the vertical, is it's not center to center with the driven element. The bottom of the ref passive reflector is exactly coincident with the bottom of the driven element. So the, the reflector sits up above uh, a bit, um, which might have lowered the, the vertical beam path a bit. Of course, there's the uh, wheel track. Uh, which you can see is a bunch of bricks. 
uh, and then he used Model T wheels back in the, which were readily available in the 30s. When they tried to make the reproduction in the uh, 60s, they had sort of a tough time finding uh, Model T wheels that were in good condition. They really made the reproduction of this, which still exists at Green Bank, uh, exactly as Jansky made it. You, and you can go see it if you want to. Uh, then he, you can't see this, but he did a uh, one-quarter power horsepower motor with a reduction gear so that this thing on its own would rotate every uh, 20 minutes, all right? I think that means that, that about each degree uh, is about three seconds. So this thing is very slowly rotating. Here's the uh, replica, working replica at Green Bank. I talked to Bill Brundage. K8HUH, um, and uh, who's now NM5WB, who fired this thing up with some other hams on uh, at the uh, Green Bank, and they made some contacts on 15 meters back in 82. Uh, here's the top view. Uh, the driven element, of course, is in the front. The passive radiator's in the back. And what I want you to see from this picture is here is the motor box. Here's where the quarter-inch, I'm sorry, quarter-horsepower motor is. This is a motorcycle chain that is pulling this guy around at a really slow rate. Gets really geared down, goes to move rather slowly. And there are the Model T wheels. And you might be, th if you're thinking ahead, uh, you win the prize of how do you connect a cable to this when it is continuously rotating? Well, this is the way Jansky did it, and this is how they did it on the reproduction is, they made a sleeve bearing. So this thing is sliding, essentially continuously rotating conductors uh, against each other. Uh, it's amazing that, that that didn't cause noise sufficient to block what he was trying to accomplish. Here's the actual uh, beam width, uh, the horizontal beam width of the uh, replica. Uh, the, the guys, uh, the hams who ran this said they noticed it had an incredible null in the back, and sure enough, it, it does. Uh, here's the vertical uh, beam pattern. The black is what is calculated. And then the red, they uh, they actually measured by sending a little miniature 15-meter uh, transmitter aloft with balloons at different uh, at different heights to get an uh, idea of the single strength. One of the reasons he was successful, uh, you know, we love sunspots, some of us, uh, so that we can bounce our, our signals off the ionosphere and keep them close to home. But uh, although he was not, well, his desire was not to try and get radio signals from outside the solar system, had he been operating almost any place else other than 1930 to 32 or maybe 33, um, you know, the ionosphere would have cut him off. Uh, it would have reflected back the wavelengths that he was working at. And he never would have seen or heard, I should say, those uh, signals from the center of the galaxy. Here's one of the recordings. Notice, uh, if you look carefully, um, there is a peak every 20 minutes. Well, obviously, he uh, has the uh, the source of this radio signal in its sights, and um, every 20 minutes as the antenna swings around, um, you you get the peak. So when how is he filling the rest of the sky, though? Because uh, this antenna can only move in uh, azimuth, not in elevation. And, well, the Earth is used as to try and get to the aspect of elevation to some degree. So you can cover quite a bit of the sky if you keep recording over long enough periods of time. 
And what he found was that um, at cert, at, if you let this go for a while, that, then the peak would disappear. In other words, um, the the stars would move, uh, essentially. And even though you were pointed in the right direction uh, in azimuth, you couldn't be pointing in the right direction anymore in elevation. They The stars had, you know, for lack of a better term, had rotated themselves because of the Earth's rotation uh, around the uh, outside of the beam path of the antenna. And what he noticed was that when he first began to quantify this was that it looked like it was on a 24-hour period, and it looked like it was lined up with the sun. Uh, and the sun, you know, radio astronomy, you can do day or night. You don't have to do it at night. Uh, but the, the sun was expected, although it wasn't until World War II that the sun was confirmed to be a source of radio waves, mostly at way high frequencies, um, it wouldn't have been a surprise back then to find the sun as a radio source, even though it wasn't confirmed. But he found that over time, the sun slowly began to move away from the source, but the source continued to point towards uh, Sagittarius, which is essentially the center of the the Milky Way. Bell Labs jumps on this right away. They do two things. They line them up to give a talk in Washington, D.C. at a scientific uh, symposium, and they send a uh, they send a, a press release to, Bell, to uh, New York Times. They put it on the front page in May of 33, and uh, notice right here it says, don't worry, there's no, there's no evidence of interstellar signaling. In other words, these aren't uh, beings out there sending us a signal trying to prevent mass havoc. Ah, there's the actual picture of the one he built in Green Bank. Uh, they, they must have hired a plane to do that, I'm guessing. Uh, and now you know how he can really plot radio uh, intensities over the vast majority of the, the you know, the uh, constellation dome. If you do it long enough over a period of a year or more, you can get an idea of where the signals are the strongest. Here is a um, memorial that was put in, I think, in the late 90s at what, the location of Bell Labs in Homedale, New Jersey. There's the location in case you want to visit sometime. And there, uh, this art, artist's rendition uh, uh, does justice to what, what he performed. Um, why was he successful? Well, Joe Taylor said that he was a very capable scientist, and uh, uh, he had a mind that expected nature to reveal itself. There's also some other reasons the sunspot uh, was important as well. So I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have any other questions or comments, or if you have answers to some of my questions, please shoot them on. Thanks a lot. This is N3DRH out. What do you think, Tom? That was a fantastic presentation, man. It's really amazing. Yeah. Thanks to our friend John Ossie, N3DRA2. Happens to be in the chat room yeah, right now. Yeah, I think now. I saw him in there. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Really appreciate you sharing that with us. So, Emil, you got the, that antenna started? No. no. Uh, that's not going to my backyard anytime <laughs> soon. What about you, Peter? You got plenty of room down there in the outback. Uh, yeah, in the outback we would, but uh, it's a long way away from where I live. So, uh, yeah. but I'm, I was fascinated by the antenna and uh, uh, how uh, how it's constructed. I've never seen anything quite like that. It's um, qu quite unusual. Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it really was, and uh, the, the whole both the segments together. Mm -hmm. 
were uh, very good. Great work. I didn't know really about Jansky. Yeah, I, I didn't either. But uh, I'm going to go look that up and see yeah. about watching. If there's some other stuff out there, yeah. checking it out. Yeah, that, that had to, at the time, been just cutting-edge stuff, man. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. just isn't like... It, isn't it a measurement uh, <clears throat> metric as well? I've heard of Janskis before. You have? I have. Yeah, it's like a measurement of signal, maybe, or, you know, so many Janskis. I've heard of that before. I just don't remember what the metric is. I'd, I have not, so I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes yeah. things cost cost me a five ski or a twenty ski. <laughs> <laughs> they cost email a one ski. A one ski. <laughs> oh wait, I found it here. I googled it. The Jansky symbol is J Y <clears throat> is a non S I unit of spectral flux density or spectral irradiance used especially in radio astronomy. It's equivalent to ten to the minus 26 watts per square meter per hertz. Well, there you go. I guess you know who that was coined after. Yep. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Put that the rest for sure. I think we've about come to the end of another exciting episode here. It yeah. seems everyone made it all the made way through. Made it through it okay. Everybody is still in one one piece? Yep. So. Yeah. So that's good. Yep. yep. Well, um, before we go, a couple it's things. better than last month turned out. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised everybody showed back up after that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, before we go, a couple things we want to mention. One is we were talking about that Amateur Logic swag earlier. Where can you get that, Tommy? She saw me at amateurlogic.spreadshirt.com. And uh, wear it and represent proud and take some selfies of yourself, and you may end up on Amateur Logic. Yep. When you want to find the show notes on Amateur Logic, I believe, if I'm correct, in the chat room here. Uh, he was in there here. a little while ago. Uh, yeah, he's still in there, yeah. Dan. So he must still be in one piece, too. In yep. 9LVS, our wiki monster yep. does the, uh, the wiki for Amateur Logic with yep. the show notes. AmateurLogic.tv slash wiki. You can... Uh, find those there yeah, thanks so much for doing that dan yeah. really appreciate it big help we need to get him an amateur logic shirt says wiki meister on it <laughs> what? did you say wiki meister or wiki monster meister meister oh, okay yeah. meister okay yeah <laughs> all right um any final parting thoughts before we go tommy no uh, i think it was a pretty good show I think it was, too. Yeah. I, I know I had fun, so uh, I had that's fun. any measure of uh, how it turned out. But uh, I guess we'll, we'll see you guys next month. Yeah. I had fun, too. You know, it's always exciting when you can increase the range of your ham station from one foot to a quarter mile. You know. Yeah, that's that's quite an increase. It is. Just think about the gain involved. Well, really, there was no gain involved transmitter was working fine all along it was a receiver so it was interesting to find that out and i'm fortunate to uh, you know have a spectrum analyzer so i could actually quantify that the transmitter was mm-hmm. you know was in fine condition there uh, peter what is any, that measurement uh synad right the receiver's uh performance uh i didn't actually go down and i could have determined that but i didn't look that far 
I'd like to learn how to do that one day. I, I've seen a whole bunch of uh, repair type forums on YouTube, and they have some pretty high fluting equipment, from what I can see, doing that. Yeah. Uh, any final words from uh, from down south there, Emil? No, other than I'll uh, just keep uh, taking bites out of pie and being cheap as possible. Uh, that's uh, I'm hooked. Thanks a lot, guys. Oh, you're welcome, and you've been, shall I say, very successful at it so far. Yeah. Keep oh, thank in. you. Seems like you're right on track. Having uh, fun. Peter, anything from really far south? Yeah, um, the only thing I would say is about uh, when it comes to ballooning, don't overfill your balloon. Um, the, uh, yeah. Just uh, to be exact, because it is critical. Do you think we'll there's find any... out about that next month. Well, well, we'll look forward to learning more about that from you next month. Uh, me, I don't know what I'm going to do next month. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I've yeah. got two things I'm working on, so... Yeah. Depends on which one has the most success as to which one's going to make it. There you go. We may never hear about the other you one. You may right? never hear about the yeah. other one. Okay. <laughs> Good. It wouldn't be the first time that's ever happened. Uh, no, probably wouldn't be. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being here, everyone. Uh, we had a great time, and I'm glad you could be with us. Yeah. 73. 73. 73. And then a left-handed, <laughs> I can't hardly say it. <laughs> Talking about that Amateur Logic swag earlier, where can you get that, Tommy? Yeah, get you some at amateurlogic.sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs>